Hello, Sublation Media viewers and readers, hopefully. Uh, it's me again, Douglas Lane, and this Diet Soap interview with Max Blumenthal that you're about to see is part of a hopefully four-part series on anti-imperialism. The first one is with Max Blumenthal. He represents the most uh, strident or militant anti-imperialist uh, advocate that I could find. Um, Tomorrow, uh, you'll find uh, an interview and follow-up with uh, Deep State Cuba from the This Is Revolution podcast. The, the notion here is that there is a problem on the left, just in terms of our thinking and our, our kind of desire for uh, a socialist politics to develop. We don't, we don't actually have a socialist politics at the moment, but... Uh, as we view the world and its various crises and moments of violence and collapse, uh, difficulties emerge that have a long historic basis uh, just in, in the socialist struggle. And um, this series is going to hopefully help uh, us at least understand what the problem is when it comes to uh, imperialism uh, and democracy. I think those would be the two. Uh, aspects of this difficulty. All right, so here you are with the first in the series, uh, an interview with Max Blumenthal. Max Blumenthal is a journalist who's written for the New York Times, the LA Times, the Daily Beast, the American Prospect, and the Nation. Among so, sorry, places. Douglas, I, I know this, that you're recording this live, but um, oh, it's okay. Go. I can. I would like to. Up, maybe it. we can just. Uh, I can just give you a short bio because that doesn't really right. reflect i was just, gonna say uh, you're also with the gray zone but go ahead yeah just if you would just say i'm the editor of the, the gray zone just briefly about my bio i just didn't want you to read off a bunch of uh publications i wrote for in the past that would never allow me to write for them again the death of god is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that diet soap is a sublation media podcast just if you would just say i'm the editor of the gray zone and uh the author most recently of the management of savagery that would be enough okay well you, you know what i will just use what you just said as your your bio and ad that you're also um, the author of an essay entitled How Zelensky Made Peace with Neo-Nazis, um, which is an essay I want to discuss with you today. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm going to start, though, somewhere else. Um, I just, I'm just i going to start with uh, the fact that we are in a moment which feels too familiar to me. I'm Generation X. You know, I grew up in the 80s and um, in the 70s and 80s, and... I recall living under the threat of a nuclear Armageddon is like one of the reasons why I became a leftist and I feel frustrated. I, the other night, like I watched the movie war games with my 17 year old kid to try to say, look, this has been going on for a while. Don't panic. 
But after I watched the movie, I felt pretty frustrated because it ought not to be a relevant film anymore, right? Everything politically has changed, and yet we're back in this moment of brinkmanship with mutually assured destruction uh, in the background. And I just wanted to start by asking you kind of a big picture question, which is why is it you think that the Cold War didn't end after the Soviet Union collapsed? What what happened to to perpetuate that? So that's a great question. That's one of the key questions for understanding what's happening now. And just briefly about my bio, I just didn't want you to read off a bunch of uh, publications I wrote for in the past that would never allow me to write for them again. Uh, <laughs> I just didn't want to dignify them. But, uh, but uh, for, for making points like the one I'm about to make, which is that, you know, the U.S. wrongly, unfairly declared victory in the Cold War. The, the end of the Cold War was achieved by both sides, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, to get working together. And the underlying fo- that the forces that launched the Cold War in Washington never went away. And mm-hmm. so after the Cold War ended or supposedly ended the first one, we had the Wolfowitz Doctrine introduced at the Pentagon under George H.W. Bush by a then little-known neoconservative civilian in the Pentagon, someone who had never been to war himself, Paul Wolfowitz. And this doctrine that he put forward called for the unipolar domination of the U.S. across the entire world and for it to carry out regime change assaults on former uh, on 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 the remaining independent nations that had previously relied on the Soviet um, Soviet military support or its protective umbrella. Perfect example would be Iraq, uh, mm-hmm. Iran. These were, all, of course, enemies of Israel that he wanted to see wiped out, but also to do regime change operations in Eastern Europe and to move closer into the frontiers of what was left of Russia. This was the mentality in Washington. Mm-hmm. It was it was sort of uh, not just that they were, they were moving towards rollback. The containment doctrine had been conceived at the dawn of the first Cold War, and it was really the basis for the Cold War by George Kennan, mm-hmm. who was uh, Secretary of State under, uh, who was Assistant Secretary, no, sorry, he was U.S. Ambassador in Moscow. And he, and he wrote to the Secretary of State the long telegram, which was 8,000 words, spelling out his perspective on the Soviet Union, which proved wrong that the Soviet Union sought world domination through military aggression mm-hmm. and that it had to be contained. There were more extreme elements in, you know, in the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs uh, who tried to convince Kennedy to bomb Cuba, for example, who believed in rollback, like actually going to Moscow and doing regime change, destroying the Soviet Union. But containment became the basis for um, the Cold War. And the idea behind it was to create, a, first of all, a pressure cooker effect or, around the Soviet Union so that uh, it would become internally destabilized because they it wouldn't have you know, the adequate amount of resources or industrial capacity to s- supply the citizenry and maintain socialism, and externally to deny it a sphere of influence. 
the, where, where is the Soviet sphere of influence? Well, it was the Eastern Bloc states. And so after the Soviet Union is brought to an end by Mikhail Gorbachev, one of the least popular figures in Russia today, mm-hmm. instead of working with Russia and honoring the agreement with Gorbachev, the, between James Baker, H.W. Uh, Bush's Secretary of State, and Gorbachev, to not expand NATO beyond the German borders. I mean, NATO really had outlived its purpose by that point. It was supposedly a defensive alliance to prevent Soviet invasion, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They began expanding NATO, waging color revolutions in the former Eastern Bloc states, the Baltic states, basically paying civil uh, civil society activists, providing them with uh, technology technology and communications gear, as well as political encouragement to overthrow uh, their government. Figures like Edward Shevardnadze, the foreign minister under Gorbachev, who was friendly with the West in Georgia, he was toppled and a CIA asset, Mikhail Saakashvili, was put in his place in one of the first major color revolutions. Mm -hmm. So Russia is, at this point, the victim of a giant crime by the point of the color revolutions, we're talking about the early 2000s, late 90s. Mm-hmm. The crime was um, shock therapy imposed during the 1990s by Larry Summers and Anders Aslan and uh, Andre Schliefer. And this, this whole gang, they called them like the Harvard boys. They were kind of like the Chicago boys, but they went to Moscow to impose uh, IMF austerity, neoliberalism, and three to five million Russians who had lived off of their pensions, who relied on the state support from the Soviet Union to survive, died just excess deaths. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, okay. I want to jump. I, I want to jump in and 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 kind of yeah. stick with this post-Soviet moment because it's really important the the way in which. Um, the Soviet Union devolved into a state that was run by uh, foreign, to call it investment is kind of a misguided, but foreign influence and warlords in in the in Russia. Uh, oligarchs, sort of the mafia. Oligarch, yeah, pro, just straight up profiteering in it. And it was a hopeless time for the people of Russia, for, yeah. for sure. Um, d- you know, despite the fact that there was kind of moments of hope beforehand where uh, uh, with Yeltsin and 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 Gor- some, I think, thought that Gorbachev would bring in a, a more open and democratic society, perhaps. But it it was certainly for the left in the United States. It was certainly dispiriting. I recall to watch what was happening in in Russia. Um, but even then, in the as that was happening, there was talk in NATO and in the United States and in Russia. I think about trying to you know. As, even though the economic policy was as bad as it was anywhere else in the developed world, um, there was still a thought, okay, why don't we bring Russia in? There was, there were conversations about having Russia join NATO. Yeah. And yeah. while you, you talked about um, Herbert Walker Bush being, you know, influenced by Wolfowitz and having a, a, a doctrine of unipolarity, there was still some thought of multilateralism. And the, well, uh, yeah, Jim Baker was Jim Baker in many ways is polar opposite of Wolfowitz. I mean, Wolfowitz had just burrowed from within the Pentagon and was just beginning this influence campaign that really came to fruition under the second Bush, 
But under the first Bush, you know, Jim Baker, they hated him because he was considered an Arabist. You know, he was friends with the Saudis. You know, he represents mm. the Texas oil industry. And uh, he was sort of a realist. Brent Scowcroft, the ultimate realist, was, uh, you know, Bush's NSC advisor. So you have these different factions, but the, but the point you're making is correct. Both Yeltsin and Putin sought entrance into NATO, and NATO demonstrated what it really exists for by rejecting Russia's entry. NATO exists to, in the words of a former, uh, its former director, I believe, uh, to keep Russia out, keep Germany weak, the most powerful country in Europe weak, and keep the United States strong. In other words, to keep the United States in control of Europe to make sure Europe is not its own independent entity, because once it becomes independent, you start to see a coherence between all of Europe, including its most lar its largest country, Russia. And like, I'll get into it later, but that's the, that was the U S fear of the Nord Stream and Nord Stream two pipeline is it connected the two most powerful countries. It, it threw a mutually beneficial ec um, economic project, a gas pipeline. It would have been a peace pipeline. That's not what the U.S. wants to see. So NATO is essentially a new Cold War alliance. It was creating the basis for a new Cold War and possibly a new hot war, as you started this discussion, mm -hmm. possibility of nuclear Armageddon. Because it wasn't just bringing countries in. It was bringing dual-use missile launchers during the second Bush administration onto Russia's frontiers. And... In, um, I believe it was 2008, this is when things really reached the boiling point because NATO called for the entry of Ukraine. That was something most Ukrainians, I believe, didn't even support at the time. But that's mm -hmm. just the big no-no. Ukraine, it means borderlands. It's at Russia's doorstep. Mm -hmm. It's at the, at the point of several strategic ports, Sevastopol and Crimea. I mean, that's Russia's only warm water port. There are so many reasons why Russia would never allow NATO there. But the first one is it's not going to be threatened by the West on its own border. So mm. Putin is there. And so Putin's job basically was to take the 90s and bury, just bury that, to turn Russia into a nation again, to strengthen the Kremlin. That meant a lot less democracy, what he called a managed democracy, to get the oligarchs under control, to... Week in the My kid just came in. Hold, hold on a second. Yeah, no I'm, on a, I'm on a podcast that I was going to do the other day, and I'm doing it now, but I'll be right over in about, a, about 45 minutes or so. All right. That's my 17-year-old kid I mentioned earlier who watched board games with me the other day. So anyway, nice. uh, pick, pick up where, where you left off. My kid <laughs> yeah. wouldn't listen so easily because she doesn't speak English yet. But um, oh, Okay. Well, uh, probably not 17. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Um, so, so, so Putin is, Putin is in, I mean, just a quick history of Putin. I mean, he came in with the blessing of Clinton with the Russian oligarchs, Boris Berezovsky, the most, at the time, most powerful kind of figure blessed him. The, the U S media was saying Putin was going to continue Yeltsin's great legacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he came out of the whole St. Petersburg capitalist project, free market pro project. So they thought, wouldn't this guy? Are you know Justin, but he also was a nationalist and he turned out the lights at the you know Dresden KGB station at the embassy. He saw 
the damage of the 90s and he realized his popularity depended on stability, economic and social stability, uh, reviving nationalism, making people proud to be Russia, basically making Russia great again. And it also mm -hmm. it, it did involve prosecuting some oligarchs in like high publicity show trials. Mikhail Khodorkovsky put in a cage in a tell and, and, and put on trial while he was in a cage. I mean, he's one of the main funders of the Russian opposition movement now. So, so 2008, Putin looks at the world and sees that the U.S. is marching across the Middle East, destabilizing the entire region. Iraq fell. It, it was in a, a disastrous state. Would have never happened if the Soviet Union was still there. The Arab Spring you know, starts taking place and more of the Middle East is destabilized. He gives up power um, in uh, – 2010, briefly, he gives up the Kremlin to an ally, Medvedev. And what happens mm -hmm. in 2011? In 2011, the U.S. invades, destroys Libya, murders, has its leader murdered by Al-Qaeda-affiliated proxy fighters in his hometown of Sirte. Mm -hmm. And Russia abstained at the Security Council. Putin said, no way, man, I, I'm, I'm coming back. He just comes back in. And says, I'm shutting the door on these regime change operations, stops the Syria regime change operation, stabilizes Syria, which I think prevented the collapse of Lebanon, uh, even though it's already on the brink, prevented ISIS from entering Lebanon. Uh, it would have been a complete disaster. Syria was his way of just shutting the door. He's shut the door on the color revolution projects, jailing figures like Navalny, who was the West's kind of great white hope for a color revolution in Russia. And a, a faction in Washington, which still believes in the Wolfowitz Doctrine, well, the Wolfowitz Doctrine is their lodestar, begins to uh, create the basis in the United States for the new Cold War, to get the American public on board with a new Cold War. And these are some of the most unsavory individuals, along with you have the neocons who are in both you know, they were in the Obama administration. They'd been in the Bush administration. A key figure would be Victoria Nuland, who is now Assistant Secretary of State overseeing Ukraine, Russia, right under uh, Tony Blinken, but who started her career in government under Dick Cheney during the second Bush administration, then moved mm -hmm. into the Obama administration. And she's there. They launch a coup in Ukraine to after its government accepted a economic partnership with Russia instead of one with the European Union, which would have meted out more austerity. You know, Russia is just sort of the natural trading partner, special, especially for This for was energy. in 2011, right? You're, you're, this was 2014. This oh, was 2014. 2014. So you have, okay. you have a, a leader in Kiev who is considered pro-Russian. That wasn't really the case. He was sort of neutral and a neutral leader in Kiev is is naturally going to have a strong partnership with Russia just because of the historic ties with Russia and that it's right there. Uh, you know, you're going to get you're going to be able to export a lot of grain to a market that it's easier to transport it. You're going to be able to bring in lots of natural gas and other energy for heating in the winter. So that's where he was coming from. He was yeah, he was also corrupt like all the post-Cold War leadership there was. Mm -hmm. So 2014, you have the U.S. openly encouraging a coup on the Maidan, the Maidan Square in Kiev. Victoria Nuland is there. 
She's an Obama official handing out cookies to protesters uh, alongside the U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Piat. Piat, and they're over. They're heard on a phone call that I believe you know the phone was tapped. I assume by Russian intelligence and leaked to the media, and they're deciding after the coup succeeds, and Yanukovych is forced to run for his life, who will serve in the next government. It was a complete puppet government. It showed you exactly what the Maidan regime was. It was a U.S. government to push NATO onto Russia's doorstep. And the first thing that happens there is the ultranationalist forces, which had been unleashed uh, by you know the color revolutions, but specifically the Maidan supposed revolution of dignity, they suited up in paramilitary uniform. They're incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard, and they go east with U.S. support to attack the Russian, the ethnic Russian population in the Donbass, which is seeking to secede because they don't want to be part of this government that doesn't recognize them as Ukrainians. The war mm-hmm. breaks out. And back in the U.S., what do we have happening? There was the, an attempt to kind of do a, a you know, a reset with Russia, a new start with Russia. And, and in okay, the, this is now what year are we in with with the reset? See, we're in twenty four. We're in twenty fourteen. So the reset had happened. It was all about kind of um, neutering Russia, though Russia knew it. And, and when it fails, uh, I mean, I can point to so many just insane incidents of Obama officials just provoking a new cold war with Russia. One would be, uh, I don't know if you watch MSNBC, you'll see this guy, Michael McFall all the time clamoring for, mm-hmm. you know, harsh sanctions and military escalation against Russia. He was the ambassador for two years under Obama. And in 2011, 2012, he gathered all of the anti-Putin opposition and had them come to the embassy for a giant meeting and he was trying to get them under one umbrella. He was openly organizing a regime change operation inside Moscow. And what the Kremlin did was they have all they had all the state media wait outside the U.S. embassy and just film them all come in and, and hammer them with like questions, accusing them of being sellouts and aired it all on national TV, humiliating McFall. I mean, he was forced out the next year because he was just exposed. So um, the U.S. It, uh, all, uh, imposes its first sanctions on Russia, I believe in 2015, the Magnitsky Act, targeting Putin in his inner circle in a very suspicious incident. Uh, And I guess we don't really have time for me to describe the whole thing, but this incident was- Well, okay, I I feel like we're getting uh, into the details which are important to to know, but I'm still, half of my mind is still based on, still, still thinking like, why the fuck did we end up in this game of risk? I mean, what what is it that that went wrong so that Russia and and the United States and the EU and that, you know, couldn't come together through the UN or uh, or NATO repurposed NATO to form some sort of alliance and compete with each other in the realm of trade rather than militarily? Why? Why is it that this kind of vicious fight? Um, we, back and forth. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what and, I and, said. And uh, just to throw one, up to. I know one more, one more thing to throw in here is like it. It was, and even in two thousand, NATO was sitting around, like trying to ask itself. There was a report by a professor Yuri 
Davidoff, which I found online about should asking the question, should Russia join NATO? And uh, by its own account, it's like, well, you know, we've done a number of things that have made that pretty difficult, like our intervention in Kosovo, as an example, uh, that was mentioned in the report. Um, there just seems to be a tendency by the United States to set, try to set up, as you mentioned, a unipolar world rather than a multilateral one, rather than a one where people are, you know, where the U.S. military is is the enforcer of an, an order rather than, uh, you know, rules of law, fair trade, all of the kinds of rhetoric that you hear uh, is that the West is supposed to be about. And what I'm wondering is, do you think that is a matter of the character of the West or is there some intrinsic problem within the society, Western society, or maybe the global system that holds us back from being able to, to find a way towards a peaceful coexistence with other nations? Well, you, you would think, you know, from a kind of a material, a purely materialist perspective, there was no ideological clash between post-Soviet Russia and the United States. So why did all of this start happening? Right. And I'm, I'm trying to provide the details for people to understand, to kind of, to fill in the outlines, to, to provide a more, you know, color to the outlines, but maybe I haven't provided the outline clearly enough. Mm -hmm. The United States would not accept Russia or any other country as a geopolitical competitor for so many reasons, all related to the priorities of an elite. I don't think Western society is defective. I think we have mm -hmm. a defective leadership that has been weaned on these uh, imperial Cold War era fantasies and its revival allowed them to, for example, in the Pentagon or the CIA, justify their bureaucratic priorities and their budget. And now we have we have a record Pentagon budget based on great power competition. That was the Trump doctrine introduced in 2017 um, with Russia and China. This is like the glory days for contractors in Washington. I mean, half of the Pentagon's budget doesn't even go to sol you know, equipping soldiers. It goes to private contractors who are gentrifying the city I live in right now and buying, you know, McMansions in the suburbs. That's what that's mm -hmm. about. Um, but the other issue is geopolitical. The U.S., if it wanted to topple the Syrian government, for example, found Russia putting – and Putin specifically and the Kremlin specifically and his security apparatus rejecting that shabby and destructive regime change campaign and, and standing in the way. So, of course, Putin is your number one target because you can't take out the other guys and impose a uh, little kind of like puppets like King Abdullah and Jordan or, uh, you know, have a puppet like uh, the UAE, which is, you know, even worse from a human rights perspective. And so the U.S. will use any weapon against Russia possible to enforce the Wolfowitz Doctrine. I think it all goes back to the Wolfowitz Doctrine and... Mm -hmm. People in both parties, as I mentioned, Victoria Newland, believe in this. It's just a, about believing in American exceptionalism and empire for them. But there are also there's there's also a material aspect to it. Victoria Newland, and I'm just using her as an example of one person in Washington mm -hmm. who has a mm -hmm. lot in common with so many people here. She was the 
director or, or founder of a think tank here in Washington called CNAS, or the Center for a New American Security. Who funds mm -hmm. it? The arms industry and the State Department. The arms industry was paying her salary. The arms industry is having, uh, they're, they're, you know, Ukrainians are suffering. People all across the West are suffering. People in, um, in Iraq right now are having bread riots because the grain mm -hmm. isn't coming from Russia and Ukraine anymore. And right. yeah, the people who uh, live in these McMansions here in Was outside Washington and Loudoun mm -hmm. County, the Lockheed executives, they're having the time of their life. Victoria Newland and Victoria Newland's partly responsible for that. They're with the R Russian oil ban and this escalation. Yesterday, Congress passed a $14 billion military aid package to Ukraine. I mean, that's military Keynesianism. That's us just shoveling money to the contractors. They don't have Afghanistan anymore. So now they've got this. It's great for them. So that that provides you with a helps you uh, understand material. Yeah. There's so much skin in the game for a new Cold War for these people. But there's also the ideology, the, the insane imperial ideology. Your essay, in, uh, it was written for the Gray Zone, I think, originally, and it was published a few other places as well, um, talks about the trouble that Zelensky has had um, and I guess we should maybe uh, let you kind of fill in how Zelensky came to power. But my understanding is he was uh, a way for the it was one way in which the United States could accept for the people of Ukraine to reject their puppet would be how I would put it. And he had a lot of support from uh, billionaire money and, a, and a, a longstanding TV program to propagandize with and all of that. But nonetheless, he was more he was more of a Democratic choice for the people of Ukraine than the people that came before him. Um, but you mentioned that uh, he had real trouble controlling uh, the Ukrainian military. It would be how I put it. I mean, there were it's broken into battalions. There are neo-Nazi uh, or, or far-right militias in Ukraine that came together and kind of were empowered by the event you described in 2014. Um, uh, they gained footing and were really one of the few forces that were able to resist the Russians at that time. So they got they got incorporated into the mainstream of, of Ukrainian state a bit at, around that time. And then when Zelensky wants to set up a ceasefire, he wants to pull back. He wants to go. He's elected as some sort of peace candidate. He wants to negotiate. He has difficulty controlling him, to put it mildly, right? So when I look at that situation and I look at all the oligarch money that's influential in Ukraine and the way in which uh, – you, he had and, and how everyone has their own like racket going on like the the people are using each other billionaire money going to this militia group and then to that militia group um i ha can't help but notice that there might be something similar and i think you mentioned it happening in the united states as well only on a different level where you talked about military contracts and the, the need for the pentagon apparatus to to um get funding and to uh, to justify its existence um, and that might have been another reason why the Wolfowitz Doctrine was appealing to the people in power in the United States because it served the, the most uh, of the needs of the elite. So the largest number of oligarchs in the United States were served by that doctrine. Um, would you, though, say like something similar is going on in, in Russia, that they have their own problems with corrupt, corruption, that, the, that the, there's competition? Uh, between elites that the doctrine isn't really being 
like the invasion itself was probably not in the interest of the Russian people. So uh, at least not overall. So how do we as well, I'm just going to ask it there. Would you agree that that's the case, that this is sort of a worldwide problem of elite dominance and it takes different forms in different places? I see it as a problem of imperialism. The U.S. is an imperial power. It fits the classic definition of imperialism where industry and state have merged and the latter is doing the bidding of the former and exploiting the resources, using the military as kind of a resource exploitation machine. The military itself has become a giant uh, a giant ATM for a wing of U.S. society, a wing of the elite. Russia has a very different situation, although it is absolutely as overrun with corruption as any post-Soviet state. Um, mm. Of, in, of in Lenin's in Lenin's essay, Imperialism, the Highest Form of, of uh, Capitalism, yeah. he talks about how uh, imperialism arrives through the concentration of capital, like the, the, the way we produce things in society tends to set up unequal uh, power centers, you know, and it, it, it basically uh, one or two industries are going to outcompete the uh, the others and dominate uh in the collection of the surplus and set up unequal powers and that will happen within a country but also happens between between nations as well so that's why in, in the linen essay uh england and and europe and then the united states maybe i'm not sure if they were mentioned in linen's essay uh become imperial powers it's because of the the way that they got an they were ahead in terms of capitalist production and the and the concentration of capital there, wouldn't you say today, like in Russia and in China and in the United States and Europe, there's a tendency for there to be concentration of capital as well, and that you can have similar dynamics going on in, in all three major powers. I mean, in a multilateral world or multipolar world, so I should say, aren't we talking about three imperial powers? We're not in a multipolar world. I know, but that's what we're trying to aim at, right? I mean, that's what Putin is aiming at. That's what's trying to emerge right now, right? I mean, we we have to we have to look at the the physical reality of the U.S. Mm. with uh, archipelago of bases across the world, over eight hundred, surrounding and encircling its official designated enemies in Russia, Iran, and surrounding China. No such thing exists around the United States, and no such thing could exist, nor the United States allow it to exist. That's, you know, the physical reality. Then look at what the United States was able to do to Russia when it sought to openly so sought to wage economic war on Russia as punishment for its operation inside Ukraine, remove it from the SWIFT banking system, and target the Russian central bank. That shows that the what the essence of imperialism is that the u.s has control over the world's reserve currency in the dollar the dollar is king and the u.s enforces the power of the dollar through at gunpoint so mm. the u.s can order companies out of russia as it has done to venezuela as it's done to cuba as it's doing to syria where you have and like a nationwide food and electricity crisis because of u.s sanctions 
the U.S., with its control over the world financial system, is the sole imperial power today. Now, it may be that another country wants to supplant it, but contemporary Russia has no ability to even enforce an imperial doctrine on all of its frontier. If it were able to do so, then it would have already recovered many of the Eastern Bloc countries that are right on its borders. But Ukraine Mm -hmm. is Russia demonstrating that it will be completely ruthless if it is threatened on its frontier. And yeah, in the short term, I can look, I can, I mean, you, you can probably definitively say in the short term, uh, the, this military incursion, which could go on for months is going to have some really negative economic effects for much of the Russian population. That was something that the Kremlin understood and factored into it. We're going to see in the midterm and long-term a decoupling of the U.S. financial system from that of Russia and China, and an even closer bond between Russia and China, which is Eurasia. Mm-hmm. The largest and wealthiest in terms of resources and population part of the world. And losing that and being, un- if, if the U.S. is unable to encircle that landmass and or politically control it uh according to its own you know the its own imperial thinking uh the us is severely weakened so i mean we're not looking at we're looking at i think 10 years of history at least being decided this week mm-hmm. uh, and i think we're going to see a lot of human suffering in ukraine and human suffering across the world, including in our own communities where people are struggling with food prices. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's just uh, that if we want to like under, look at the descent of an empire, uh, I think we need to look a little further. The U.S. Is, this, it continues to be a declining empire, even though right now I think the soft power, the the, the sort of political balance has swung in the favor of NATO and the U.S., they have the they've they're winning the information war, and they're winning the economic war short term. The, the U.S. is winning the yes the yes economic war. short yeah. term yes sure. against Russia, but not against. I mean, I think China is still coming out of the COVID crisis uh, with much more secure and and productive economy than the United States. At least that was the case the last time I looked, like a year ago, um, and. Uh, Russia's economy has been pretty weak for a, a long time. This is a big blow, I would think. But, but um, why? I this is something else I try to think about because I'm trying to do like a Marxist thing, right? I do. I publish books that I wanted to perpetuate Marxism. I, I've been doing podcasting for over a decade, and um, de- learning as I go. It's sort of an autodidactic process here. So one of the things I've been trying to think about is how. The like economic crisis of 2008 and the economic crisis of the 70s set up um, not just uh, economic policies that that ultimately failed. Like for instance, in the 70s, we trans we transformed the economy from a Keynesian one into a neoliberal one over that uh, from like 73 to 83. Um, but also like how that has this is where it gets tricky. How has these these economic problems shaped? American foreign policy and world policy. And, and um, so like going back 
to the moment where the Soviet Union collapsed, what was it about uh, the the economy at that moment that put these like Friedmanites, these shock doctrine guys, into a position of of authority and setting policy for the United States? If it had happened um, in the seventies, we might have tried to rebuild. Or certainly if it happened in the 60s, we might have tried to invest and rebuild the Soviet Union and, and build up their productive capacity, and we would have been in a much different place. And why why, why wasn't that done, do you think? And what was the different there? Was it the economy? Was it a weaker neoliberal economy that, that set that the terms there? I don't know. In the 1970s, didn't the U.S. send a similar cabal of economists to Chile after – the CIA operation. Okay, you're right. I, I'm off by a decade, maybe or two. I'm I'm really thinking of of even earlier than that. I'm thinking like after World War II, when there was the beginning of a boom, and the United States rode high, and there was a sense of we should reinvest in in the in the countries that are just devastated after that war. And I'm it's kind of assuming, without knowing all the history, that that kind of during Fordism that that kind of nation building approach would have been dominant up to a, a certain point. By, but by the seventies, we were in an economic crisis, but I probably am off in my one-to-one kind of thinking like economic stability means this kind of policy. And, but anyway, I'll let you talk and stop defending myself. <laughs> well, I mean, look at how the United States uh, economists in the U S who had, who were, who were dictating, economic policy from the post-war era to the 1990s shifted. I mean, it was a Keynesian approach from FDR on, I mean, all the way through the Eisenhower administration, building the national highway system, massive infrastructure projects, the Great Society under uh, LBJ, Nixon creating the EPA. Uh, Nixon had many liberals actually in his, uh, and Keynesian types, in his administration at the at the cabinet level even uh well he you know he you know campaigned as the sort of like you know for the good people and around the southern strategy um though the united states was still uh acting at was 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 still um it still had kind of an industrial policy that was state-centered until the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then the neoliberal economists rose. I mean, they, they sort of just, it, it felt like they just, they just quickly took over. Why? Because there was no longer a threat of socialism or communism. There was no longer another pole that Americans could look to. It was the, I mean, the, the, as we all know, I mean, it's just any sort of, uh, leftist knows that the New Deal was just implemented to weaken and suppress demands for something much closer to mm. Soviet-style socialism and the rise of actual communist parties and communist mobilization, along with you know the House American Affairs Committee and all the political attacks. The American public was actually given something the GI Bill. I mean, all of this weakened the demand for socialism in the United States. And then once socialism, the socialist bloc was defeated, well, neo the neoliberals, the neoliberals came out of the woodwork and just implemented their 
fantasy. And, you know, going all the way up to the early 2000s, I think uh, if you were, uh, it, it, it would be hard to have imagined that neoliberalism would ever um, face any pushback in the United States. It was really the financial collapse that started, I think, reshaping the way that Americans see their own government. And right now you see on the political right, there's a massive surge of populism. And the, uh, many people who were who suffered the most from the foreclosure crisis, uh, who had their jobs outsourced under NAFTA, who uh, suffered the kind of abandonment of the Rust Belt, the opioid crisis, and who suffered from the lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns, small business owners, they are firmly anti-establishment and they're just this wild force in the country. Uh, so neo neoliberalism, the opposition to neoliberalism, although it they, is expressed ironically by that and paradoxically by that element as anti-communism, just because that's our national religion and that's the only language they have to express themselves. But they're 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 obsessed with you know Davos and the World Economic Forum. They're it's, yeah, it's, I think it's, the left is is somewhat responsible for that as well. Like yeah. too many of us are too quick to embrace uh, the progressive side of capitalism, you know, and say, yeah. "Oh well, we have to line up behind." Even though we hate the Clintons or we hate uh, the the Democratic Party, and when push comes to shove, we have to line up behind. I don't know, the mask mandate and, and engage in that culture war bullshit and stuff like that when it just feeds the the right. Uh, and we certainly don't distinguish our, ourselves very well from the progressive state in the United States when we do that. Um, but or I wanted just, to it, go ahead. it brings people to the right the same way they were brought to the right in Eastern Europe after they had their pensions taken and they lost everything. That's mm -hmm. why the right has risen there. And, you know, Putin is considered a right-wing, even fascist leader in the United States. But we should know that Putin prevented the hardcore right-wing takeover or or, the, or uh, the influence of a real right in Russia by just simply imposing a kind of cold nationalist conservatism when a figure of Vladimir Zirinovsky was rising in the early days, in the late days of Yeltsin, and was really their their right wing leader. Putin headed him off, yeah, uh, with U.S. support. With right? U.S. support, correct. Yeah. So, yeah. I I just don't think that the U.S. in I don't know if the U.S. at any point would have. Well, I guess you have to look at the way that U.S. economists and the U.S. political class treated its own population since the dawn of the cold war to understand how they would treat the post a a, po, a post soviet population and what gorbachev was asking for from the us was social democracy his fantasy was to have some kind of scandinavian style social democracy yeah, it's every support. leftist fantasy in the world right is a scandinavian style bernie sanders gorbachev's um and for and he got mad max he got thunderdome <laughs> right right but um what I, I don't know. I just read these documents, like the one about from within NATO, and I see that there are elements in these institutions that are like, like you know, you can be really cynical about something like the UN, right? 
and and say it's it's a it's an institution that's really in the service of the of the world powers and mostly United States and Europe. It kind of does its bidding, and certainly. Um, since we've rejected uh, being held accountable by the International Criminal Court or the UN, um, you know, it doesn't have a lot of uh, teeth or can't can't rein in the major power in the world, which is the United States. But nonetheless, it was set up, and it, the reason it exists is to try to head off exactly the kind of situation we're we're seemingly facing now. You know, the the idea here was to try to set up some sort of system of law, some some sort of uh, approach to world governance where we wouldn't have one power dominating and, and bullying the rest. And we also wouldn't have the kind of conflict that arises from that kind of thing because it was no longer feasible to allow another world war. It was no longer feasible to allow that level of conflict between major nations after the threat of nuclear Armageddon uh, raised his ugly head uh, after World War II. So I just wonder, like, when you look at this situation, what do you feel is the most, um, like, what do we need to do to get away from this game of risk and get to a, a world where we some sort of coexistence could occur? Because it doesn't seem to me that there's any ideological justification for what's going on. It seems just like systemic failure all the way down um, from from politics to economy. Um it's not like there's a, and I don't also, I don't believe there's a group of bad people who are primarily responsible. It's just that the better ideas are not a, a prevailing. We, we just aren't organized enough, but anyway, I'll stop. I'm, I'm lecturing now or pontificating too much, but you go ahead. I think we're both pontificating or thinking out loud. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not, you know, solutions oriented person. Uh, I talk to people like Alfred Desaius at my um, at the Gray Zone, who has spent his life thinking about and teaching international law and international relations, and thinks outside the box. I met him actually at the UN Human Rights Council. We spoke at a breakaway event together, or a, uh, it, a break off in a break off room, like it wasn't an official HRC event on Venezuela. And he's a, kind of a defender of the the non-aligned countries that constantly come under attack from the U.S. as well as Western Sahara and the Palestinians. And he wants to reimagine international law because he could, what we have now is sort of irrelevant or it, 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 it's definitely not protecting populations from being overrun and abused. Um, it, in a multipolar world, Larger countries are going to want a sphere of influence. And that means countries like Taiwan or Ukraine are not only caught in between, but they have been cultivated by the most powerful country since World War II, the United States, as outposts of influence or um, bastions of, of empire. And that population, as the countries that they have been weaponized against get stronger is increasingly threatened and international law is completely irrelevant. And these conflicts will be settled by force. And that's what I consider the danger yeah. as we move towards a multipolar world, the United States is weakened as an empire. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, that's and what I mean. You, you say yeah. uh, these other countries, major countries, China, Russia, um, maybe India, 
uh, will want their, to have their regional influence. But when you look to the United States as a model for having influence, it's a fucking ugly show. I mean, you, you know, you could list all the atrocities that, uh, that the United States has committed in the name of the holding on to their influence. And so you, I, I don't want to see I don't think it's going to be an improvement, especially given how quickly this has turned into a threat of Armageddon. It's not going to be a great improvement for everyone to be trying to have influence in the way in the same way as the United States, like some other outcome than simply recreating the same dynamic uh, in other parts of the world has to be the outcome. It has to should be. We should be aiming as people on the left should be aiming for some other outcome uh, because I just think that's ugly. Well, yeah, I mean, we should we should be there. there, There's so many uh, people who have been emotionally they're having like the, the, this there's there is an elite and semi-official campaign to force this collective psyche of americans but mainly like the people on the coasts who are most responsive to propaganda into a, a psychological meltdown over ukraine but this never happened mm-hmm. over yemen the worst humanitarian humanitarian crisis in the world until until this it never happened. It never happened over Syria, except uh, in this kind of propagandistic way through U.S.-backed information warfare outfits like the White Helmets to encourage more war and a regime change war. But it never, it never happens over Congo, the site of what you could possibly call the worst genocide since World War II. And right. in all of these cases, in all of these cases, you have colossal violations of international law often by the U.S. And so anyone uh, who, you know, any country that wants to, um, that, that wants to use brute force against uh, a U.S. proxy, for example, can just point to something the U.S. said and they have no credibility at all. No, international law, therefore, loses any uh, credibility when know, the U.S. tries to wield it. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, and the whole U.S. public, anyone, any smart person in the U.S. would just scoff at Hillary Clinton today, pointing the finger at Russia for uh, alleged bombing of a maternity clinic in, um, I think, Kharkiv in, in Ukraine. So I remember the uh, I, the way they – I remember the Gulf War. <clears throat> and I remember the reports of them throwing babies out of incubators that was set up to justify – the uh, invasion of, of Iraq. Yeah. And I know the kind of propaganda that you get during these moments, but I, I do want to say something about the reason why people on the coast, I'm on, I'm in Portland. So I'm on the coast. It's like, you're not, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all that I'm, I'm here in <laughs> yeah. DC. So yeah. Right. That's how I but, understand. But I think, I think, I think that there's a difference between the Congo and Yemen and, and all the, and uh, even Afghanistan and, and Iraq, which are, you know, uh, uh, were did capture the the uh, people's imaginations and, and were sites of fear. Um, this is a this seems like a return to the 20th century in its worst moments because again of the nuclear threat and the the possibility of bringing in uh, uh, multiple countries and reenacting uh, you know what have become like fictions for us but which were terrible moments in history which i think if they did if we were to see them again the level of devastation and and damage done to the to the people 
would uh, like, I think Putin was right. If we walk down this road towards, <laughs> towards nuclear conflict, we'll, what will be unleashed will be like nothing we've ever seen as, as I think. So that may be why the people on the coast and people who are paying attention to Ukraine are so concerned. It's not because we're, we are thinking about the human rights violations of people in Ukraine, although those are terrible, I'm sure, and I don't want to minimize that. And it's not because we're wanting to overlook um, the, uh, the the violations of the Russians that were in the eastern part of the Ukraine, and the in the in the or certainly not Yemen or Libya. Or, it's because this could blow up in all of our faces, and maybe that's self-interested, but I think it's a natural kind of self-interest to to have. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the question is here, but the, uh, the question is just, I, I don't know. I guess my question is, can you, uh, I don't, just, how are you holding up? Maybe like, do you feel the same pressure about the possibility of this blowing up in our face? Do you feel like we're at a world historic moment? Am I overreacting to this? Do you think we're going to get to a, a point where this is, you know, that, starts to be in the background more is normalized or do you think we are in real danger here of something that didn't happen in the 20th century that didn't happen during the cold war but could happen now i mean i actually think that we're already experiencing the repercussions economically and the economic effect might be the worst of what we experience which will lead to as we saw during the pandemic like lockdowns in the global north where the economy was shut down triggered mass death in the global south because people so many people were living on the precipice in whether in india or africa their countries depend depend on exports uh you know the Sicilian fishing industry was destroyed people don't know this history and mm. the, the supply chains were all broken and now they're being broken again so we're going to see mass excess death as a result of not just the, the sanctions war, i mean but the sanctions so because the result saying of it openly they're saying it openly here in Washington. They're saying, I mean, you saw Stephen Colbert. He was basically like the court jester now of the ruling elite. And he said that we need to accept uh, gas prices at a few dollars more per barrel per, per gallon because uh, you, we need a clean conscience. And anyway, he drives a Tesla. And that's not, I mean, as disgusting as that statement was, it's not, it, it just, it papers open the real effect of higher gas prices, which is mm -hmm. uh, higher food prices, uh, fertilizer not coming in, food not being planted. Uh, you know, I, I was talking to some truckers yesterday who tell me that it costs them over $1,200 just to fill up their tank now, and they're bringing the food to us. Um, so uh, the people who are on the precipice are going to suffer, and some Yes, they will die. England is uh, is in a catastrophe right now with food prices. I mean, it's like fifty at fifty one percent higher than last year, fifty percent higher than last year. Yeah, and that was happening well, before yeah. this. That was the food prices. Yes, that's before. That's before. before. Yeah. yeah, that's before. The government's mm -hmm. job is, and I line up with the libertarian America firsters here. They're the only ones saying this. The government's job is to take care of its people. And so if you're going to impose an oil embargo on a country just to stick it to their leader and you're going to let large numbers of your people suffer and die, then you need to be removed. You're not taking care of your people. And that's what our government is doing. 
and the uh, you know economic elite that are behind it are completely on board with this. So that's one aspect of something we're we're already experiencing that. And you know the 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 middle the middle class in the U.S. completely gone. Like mortgages are going to go up massively. No one's going to no young person's ever going to be able to buy a home in this economy unless they come from money or have access to it somehow. Um, but when you talk about edging towards conventional war. I was actually just on a um, show on CGTN. It's the Chinese broadcaster in Washington. Uh, and they have this show called The Heat where you actually, someone like me can get brought in and in a debate with like top think tank fellows from the like pro-war think tanks or legislators and foreign officials. It's one of those rare forums where I actually get to trade blows with them. And a Ukrainian lawmaker was on and she was making the case for a no-fly zone and said this conflict won't be resolved in any way except military force. And that a no-fly zone just means uh, protecting people from death. And so I got to explain what a no-fly zone really meant, which you and you know any thinking person understands. It means, it means bombing Russia. Russia. Yeah, it right. would mean bombing Russia is what it would mean because you'd have to stop – yeah, I mean, it would be immediately just a war. It would be a conventional war between the United States. You're absolutely right. It's insane. Uh, and the fact that Zelensky's calling for that is something that, um, I mean, I guess I kind of understand why he's doing it, but uh, it, it's it's um, it, obviously you're going to have to reject that uh, if we want to hold on to whatever level of peace there is right now. Um, do you think if the United States had, had and, and NATO had agreed, look, we're not going to, invite Ukraine in to, to NATO. This is off the table. Um, and uh, that that would have been enough to stop the Russia from invading. The two friction points where world war could erupt, Ukraine and Taiwan. Mm. If the U.S. would just get the hell out of there and force the Taiwanese government and the Ukrainian government to deal with their neighbors on real terms, they would have to become neutral. And the risk of conflict would dissipate by the day. But the U.S. will not allow that for the reasons we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. Imperial hubris and just like, you know, all the money that can be made off of uh, everlasting war conflict. So that's what Putin is demanding. And he is being portrayed as a tyrant for demanding a neutral Ukraine. That's the whole point of this war. That means that Ukraine's government agrees in negotiations to not never join NATO, to recognize Crimea, which had a, a national referendum with massive participation to join Russia, and to recognize the uh, pro-Russian republics of Luhansk and Donetsk as independent as well. And to be politically neutralized that is something that, first of all, the Ukrainians west of the Dnipro River, who are very nationalistic and harbor all of these historical grievances against Russia, are not able to accept. And it's the job of it – it Why, be why wouldn't they the be United able States to accept to, being, being neutral in terms of NATO? I mean, they, that does – that wouldn't – if they were an independent sovereign nation – that just were not aligned 
with NATO, that would would that that wouldn't be satisfactory because they want to get revenge on Russia, or what would the reason be that they would want to hold on well, to? So it uh, it needs support. to be. It, it should be. It should have been imposed on them, not through military force, and it should it could have been imposed on them by the West saying, "Sorry, we're not going to support you militarily, and we're not giving you any economic support until you agree." And what we've done instead is embolden the ultra-nationalist elements who really ideologically are enthusiastic for crazy war with Russia to settle historical grievances and who wave banners of Stepan Bandera, the Nazi collaborator in the street. Yeah. When you're talking about nationalism, you're not even talking about national sovereignty for the Ukraine. You're talking about ethno-nationalism in Ukraine. Right, these these yeah. neo-Nazi groups, yeah, um, yeah, and these neo-Nazi yeah. groups—they have this idea of the Reconquista, uh, uh, which basically is a maximalist idea of a white reconquest of Europe. That's the Azov Battalion, which is the fiercest fighting force in the Ukrainian military, incorporated into the National Guard. They have a ideological, political wing called the National Corps, and they talk about the Reconquista, but they, um. They also have a, um, you know, a yes, just the other day, a friend of mine who writes for the Black Agenda Report in a private chat said, described uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict as white-on-white crime. So I'm not sure. Uh, wh- how do these neo-Nazis in Ukraine understand whiteness? If if and why does that set them up uh, against the uh, Russia, which is yeah, that's just uh, that's. That's an uh, sort of a, a statement that white that whitewashes or just overlooks the politics and the uh, mm. the powers at play, and just it's just a way of dismissing the whole thing as like crazy white people killing each other because they're <laughs> path because white people are pathological. I mean, I can understand the thinking, but it's just and it's kind of but funny uh, but, are, but but are what is the ethnic difference? I mean, between these new, it's the perceived ethnic difference. It's the perceived right. ethnic difference. So when you listen to someone like Ole Tianbach, who is the leader of the ultra nationalist party in Ukraine, which mm-hmm. has garnered some popular support in the past, this, this sort of, it was founded as the social national party. He denounces the Muscovite Jewish mafia. And they see a lot of them see Russian and Jewish as almost synonymous uh, because for example, when Ukraine was under Soviet occupation, um, you know, as according to the nationalist narrative, the NKVD, the sort of Stalinist, Stalin secret police, were dominated by Jewish leaders, Jewish uh, officials. The same thing in Hungary. Uh, you know, the 1956 Soviet intervention in Hungary was precipitated by pogroms because many of the Soviet, uh, you know, pro-Soviet leaders. In, in political officials in Hungary were Jewish. And so, you know, the followers of the nationalist Hungarian leader Miklos Horty became anti-Semitic on that basis. And then they developed anti-Semitic conspiracies about sort of like global bankers support the Rothschild supporting the Soviet mm. Union to do this to them. So it's just it's just baked in the cake there. And that's and then and then they hate Russians, ethnic Russians, because of the historic conflict and they are willing to act genocidally against them as we saw in Odessa at the trade union massacre in um, I believe October, 2014. Uh, 
where like, like over 40 ethnic Russians were burned alive and beaten to death in the streets after protesting the Maidan regime change. So, uh, mm -hmm. so the, the, the ideology of the Azov battalion relates to all of Europe, but also specifically to the parts of Europe that border Russia, Hungary, Poland. They want to sort of establish a bulwark, a nationalist bulwark between the West and Russia uh, that is also in many ways anti-Western because they reject the liberalism and social democracy of the West and they are traditionalist. Um, it's, you know, really unusual, but these forces were, well, it's, it's, it, it may, it doesn't represent the majority of Ukrainians, but these forces have just been emboldened and armed and trained to the point where they have veto power over so many decisions that are made at the top in Ukraine right now, or at least until this assault took place. And it's why denazification was such a priority for Russia's right. political leadership. Do you think that Zelensky, if um, if he hadn't, if this hadn't occurred, do you think that Zelensky would have been able to get somewhere at all with his anti-corruption efforts um, and been able to uh, solidify the state um, against these oligarchs? And I mean, because I know that was partly that? the without an oligarch right <laughs> but you know that's the same, same thing if uh for a lot of i mean you know lula was involved in in some corruption scandals we can't uh, there's 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 political realism here and i i would say Zelensky was for the ukraine a reformer and with with some democratic ambitions wouldn't wouldn't you think that, that i mean Zelensky i was pulling for him in the beginning i thought you know he was elected because most Ukrainians were tired of the conflict. Russian, uh, ethnic Russians welcomed him. The ones I talked to, it was their best chance for peace, they thought. And that was quickly taken off the table. And he embraced the fascistic elements when did, because that, that happened, what, around 2020 or that he, when did, when did Zelensky get forced to, to embrace a more, warmongering position i mean it's just the conflict in the east just kept simmering and simmering and escalating and the u.s keeps bringing in military trainers keeps bringing in weapons i think the key pivot point was when he and his government prosecuted victor medvedchuk who was the leader of the for life party which was the main ethnic russian opposition party and his, the home of Medvedchuk was attacked by neo-Nazis leading up to this point. Uh, legislators from his party were shot traveling to a meeting in a bus by um, Azov thugs with rubber-coated steel bullets. And then Zelensky presided over the banning of all of Medvedchuk's um, TV and news stations. And the State Department came out and officially overtly supported the banning of all those stations. Um, so the U.S. was encouraging him all the way to de-democratize Ukraine and ban the main opposition party. Why? Because Medvedchuk was the bridge to Russia. 
And as long as you allow him to be there, Russia and ethnic Russians are going to have a say. Um, Putin is the um, godfather of his daughter. So they were close. And But it was also, this was just a political attack on all the constituents, the entire ethnic Russian population with the full support of the U.S. So Zelensky was really being, it was, a, it was like a pincher attack on him as the peace president from the U.S. and the ultranationalists. And what was he? He was supposed to perform a role as an actor. Uh, and so he he's now in the role of his life. And I'm sure he's in some way, in some twisted way, really enjoying being the lead actor on the world stage with the eyes of the world on him. And he's mm. a hero to many people who had no idea who he was a few weeks ago. I know. I Well, I mean, I knew who he was barely. I remembered him from the Trump phone call. Right. And that was probably the full extent of my thoughts on Zelensky. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, it, it, he, if you've seen his television, you know, as soon as, it as uh, this started to heat up, I'd watched Zelensky's program, Serving the People. And it's very difficult not to end up rooting for this guy. He is a good actor. You know, he did. It's not like it's the greatest television show ever, but it's, it's pretty good. It's, it, it brings you along. And I have a, I just, uh, part of me thinks, yeah, you couldn't make this program this way if you didn't in some way believe in the principles that are in the show. If you didn't, you can't, this could not all just be cynical. And um, on the other hand, I know that, you know, it's very easy to uh, run a campaign. It's very difficult to hold up to the, to those uh, principles, especially when the principles are pretty vague. I mean, uh, really stop and think about anti-corruption as the main uh, principle or, or aim of a of a reformist uh, candidate. It's it, that's that's only going to go so far. Um, but nonetheless, I, I I feel very much stuck. I uh, I don't. I I kind of would like to see an an outcome where what we were talking about earlier, where Ukraine would become neutral, Zelensky would be able to maintain power. Uh, I mean, the 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 neo-Nazi you know, uh, battalions uh, were uh, stepped down, were taken taken offline, um, and uh, Russia did not absorb uh, the all of Ukraine. Did not uh, aim at and did not aim at tr trying to control the Ukrainian government. Do you think that's? I don't think happen? Russia wants to absorb all of Ukraine. It would be that's the that's the misunderstanding um, of like a lot of the U.S. pundits is that you know Putin's going to march on on Kiev and then go west. Uh, and if 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 Russia has to enter Kiev, that you know is the beginning of some kind of aren't, disaster. Aren't, aren't they? Aren't they? Isn't there a convoy headed? For Kiev right now they're there they're there they're they're in yeah. this they're in the northern suburbs they're they're taking suburban areas of Kiev but to go in there and take it over as the U.S. did in Baghdad I don't think that's what they're aiming for it may be what they feel they have to do which would be disastrous but Russia's focus is on the east and if you look at Russia's uh, state tv channel channel one published a map to show the Russian public where the military was to give them confidence in what they call Operation Z. And it showed the complete encirclement of the best 
units of the Ukrainian military in the east uh, around the Donbass and Mariupol area. And that pretty much spells the end of the Ukrainian military. Uh, and so what they're doing is simply attacking the Ukrainian military, destroying the Ukrainian military. And as the Ukrainian military is being destroyed, they're negotiating high level negotiations, telling them the end is near, agree to our terms. And the terms they want are control over the East and to neutralize Ukraine as a potential NATO partner. They say it openly. They've put their terms out there constantly. Um, so you can disagree with the terms or you think they're just horrible, but it doesn't relate to a total conquest of like west of the Dnipro where you have like Lviv in this um, completely monolithically uh, Ukrainian, non-Russian and largely nationalistic population. Uh, that would be sort of like a rump state. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's talk of bringing Yanukovych back, but I mean, I can't predict what will happen. I just think oh, if, if Russia is to get exactly what it wants using force uh, as a negotiating tactic, just like this Klausowitzian might approach, um, mm -hmm. they, that they will have a neutral Ukraine and political control over the East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And All right, well, I mean, what's, what's, what, what's, what does the U.S. want? They want an insurgency. I mean, they're, that's what we as Americans, like, I just want to say in closing, like, I, I, I got to go. But, you know, there's so much uh, pressure to virtue signal on social media if you're on the left and you're anti-war because you get associated with, with Putin or something. You know, because yeah. you're you get associated with anti-Americanism because you're anti-imperialist, and so you, you get pressured to say like I denounce Putin's illegal war and so on. Fine, you know, go say that. Russia doesn't care. The Russians obviously don't care because they're willing to like be completely severed economically and culturally from the West to achieve these objectives in Ukraine. So they don't care what you say. Uh, we have less and less democratic power in the United States. There's more and more control over social media and every other platform that we use to express ourselves. But if any government is going to listen to us, it's ours. And the anti-war movement is not in the streets right now. They should be out in the streets opposing a no-fly zone, opposing the package that Congress passed, sending more weapons into Ukraine, and opposing any escalation. Because people in this city in washington who voted for these packages conceived them made the weapons they don't care about ukrainians they really don't they want to fight this war to the last ukrainians the only thing they care about is balkanizing russia and smashing it into pieces and returning it to what it was in the 90s that's all they care about so opposing escalation will save lives in the current political reality, whether you like the reality or not, that's been created. Well, I think there's uh, no one on the left who is supporting escalation that I know of. That they're not, but they're, developing. but they're not, they're not, they're not taking action. Like I think they should, and they may, they will. Right. I know they eventually will, but you know, you're looking at all these images of suffering of Ukrainians. You're, you're seeing the war portrayed 
as a pure Russian aggression and Putin as a madman. And it's throwing the left on its back foot. It's fr- I think it shocked a lot of people right up to the war you had. I mean, the war has been going on since 2014 in reality, but this massive escalation of the war, you had the U.S. saying there was going to be a Russian invasion by Tuesday or Wednesday. And then the next Wednesday, they said that Russia is going to invade. We think they're going to invade. And everyone, I like most people I knew on the left were saying, there's no way that Russia would do this. And then Russia did it and it, it frightened them. It shocked them. And so I think they're now kind of demobilized and they need to keep the focus on what the focus should always be on, which is what is happening in their own country to prevent this from reaching a point of no return. Well, okay, last question, and I'll let you go. What do you think about the, uh, you know, we're talking about the American left. What do you think about the Russian left, the people, the peace movement? I, know. I don't know if they're left. The Russians in, uh, that are calling for peace there. Trying to do I don't have any – I've listened to some interviews with them, and I don't have any connection with them. And, um, you know, it's not for me to tell them what to say. And, you know, it's irre- – honestly, what they tell me, you know, it's, it's, it's – I guess it's, it's sort of a noble human impulse to protest the wars of your government, especially when it's acting against a country that seems weaker. But it has no effect on – what I'm trying to do with my journalism or advocacy here in the U S which is to, which is, to, which is focused on my own government. Um, and I mean, I, I guess I, I am also suspicious of the Russian left as a block, the same way I was suspicious of the so-called Syrian left that was presented to me uh, and was ultimately used as cover for a dirty war project uh, and they were shopped through Haymarket books and various other uh, and, and you know the trotskyist entities like the iso the international socialist organization or what i would call the international psyop uh to sell a regime change war behind marxist guys or some of them were presented as anarchists or whatever and they all have these shady backgrounds and i think you know the russian left is a much more organic entity. And I honestly, like most of the leftists I met when I went to Damascus, where all of them were opposed to the regime change war. But I don't have the same understanding of the Russian left to give that answer. I just am completely focused on what I know and what what I know about and where I think I can affect change. Um, mm. Well, listen, I appreciate that. Um, thanks for coming on. And I, I, uh, I feel like I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really enjoy these talks. They're therapeutic for me. And, and I learned. Oh, good. Too. Okay. If you enjoy these videos, you should click on the subscribe button and click that bell. You should also consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to a second behind-the-scenes parrot room discussion where we dish out gossip or go into the weeds on topics such as the tendency of the rate of profit to decline, imperialism, and the critical theories of Tiffany Percet and Donald Most. You'll also get access to both the public and private version of the revised Pop the Left series with Ashley Frawley and Pascal Robert, and the new 
Zoomer Philosophy Series. Your support will not only make content like this possible, it will also help to establish a new publishing venture through Diet Soap Media. Right now, supporting me on Patreon will make a big difference.